You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the History of China. Episode 190, The War of the Two Capitals. In the late spring of 1328, the emperor of Yuan China and 10th Great Khan of Mongolia, Yesun Temur, was at his summer palace in Shangdu in modern Inner Mongolia, about 400 kilometers more or less due north of the main imperial capital, Dadu, where Beijing is today. This annual trip to where the riverlands of China commingled with the steppe and desert of Mongolia was of both symbolic and practical importance for the great Khans of the Yuan. Shangdu had served as the great dynastic founder, Kublai's, first imperial city, and it still served both as a special retreat where the Borjigin Mongols of China could let their hair down and truly be themselves, away from the prying southern eyes of the Chinese. Likewise, it served as a ritualistically and symbolically important touchstone, a reminder of where these ruling nobles and imperial princes had once come from, so as to not completely forget that despite the comforts of food and flesh that serviced their every desire in the South, the steppe had been, and remained, their true homeland. At last, on a more practical level, it served as a much-needed seasonal escape from the intolerable summer heat of what the Mongols deemed their southern territories of northern China. Yet for all that, Yesen Temur Khan's trip to the summer capital was by no means a relaxing one. Even before he'd set out from Dadu, the 35-year-old emperor had fallen ill. It's not clear what exactly his ailment was, but it is clear that in spite of the best care and medicine his imperial doctors could administer to him, Yesen Temur's condition only worsened as the summer wore on. Finally, on the Ides of August, he slipped into a coma and died. His son and heir, the four- or five-year-old Aragabag, would succeed him as the ruler of both China and Mongolia, but only briefly. This is because Yesen Temur's death immediately touched off what would become the bloodiest and most destructive successional struggle in the whole of the Yuan Dynasty's history, what later became known as the War of the Two Capitals. Though this untimely death would be the flash that set off this civil war, it was in fact a struggle that had been simmering beneath the surface of the imperial family for decades and across generations. In fact, even this familial strife was but one aspect of an even larger conflict over the very soul of the Yuan itself, and its place in both, or either, the Chinese and Mongolian worlds. In that way, we'll see today, its name, the War of the Two Capitals, takes an even greater significance. For just as Shangdu served as the link between the Mongol and the Chinese for the Yuan imperial family, the main capital of Dadu would come to signify both geographically and even philosophically the later Yuan's abandonment of its traditions in favor of a complete immersion into the Chinese sphere. In order to more effectively understand what happened in 1328, we need to go back, back to the events of last episode, to the brotherly reigns of Kaishan and Ayurbarwada Kayans. Now, since we looked at them pretty well already, I'll just summarize for the most part here, except for the bits that got left out or were only briefly touched upon last time, but become much more important today. But you'll recall that, having seized the capitals and the throne in 1307, the brothers, with the timely intervention of their mother, came to agree that the elder, Kaishan, should seize the throne first, 
while the younger brother, Ayurbarwada, would be made the heir apparent. Ayurbarwada would then in turn designate his nephew, Kaishan's eldest son, and the then seven-year-old Khosila, as his heir. And so it would go. You'll also remember that once he was on the throne, Ayurbarwada suddenly realized that that whole promise thing to his brother was sort of kind of totally bumming him out. And so he decided to ignore it, designating his own son, Shidabala, as his heir, and sending Khosala off as the Prince of Joe to the ass end of the universe, i.e. Yunnan, to be safely kept out of the way and, hopefully, forgotten. Well, as you can probably imagine, Prince Khosala was not at all thrilled about that little switcheroo. As such, instead of reporting as ordered to Yunnan, on the way south, while still in Shanxi, Khosala and his followers staged a brief, abortive revolt in the name of restoring the scions of Kaishan to their, meaning his, rightful place as the successors to the throne. They amassed troops and made big talk about their aims and objectives, but shortly after the rebel force could even so much as begin marching back eastward toward the capital, two of the lower-ranking officers got cold feet, decided that this was going to be a disaster, and so murdered most of the rebel leadership. Khosala himself survived, but it was already clear that this little revolt was over before it had even begun. And yet, he would be bound to it and its consequences. Hosala, therefore, did about the only thing he could do. He fled into what he surely must have known could and probably would be a permanent exile. His destination, the Chagatai Khanate in the heart of Central Asia, and the court of its reigning Khayan, Essen Bukha. Historian John W. Dardis writes, quote, Instead of proceeding to Yunnan, Hosala and his group marched northwards into the grasslands, where on the western side of the Altai, the reigning prince, Esambuka, of the Chagatai Khanate warmly welcomed them. As an important political refugee from China, and as a claimant to the throne of the great Kayan, Khosala might have been of some possible future use to the Chagatids, end quote. In essence, the Chagatid Khan would keep Khosala as an ace up his sleeve, so that, if luck should so favor it, he might be able to press his claim and, perhaps, regain a seat at the table of high imperial politics and kingmaking, which had long been monopolized by the Kublid Toluids. Given the Chagatai Khanate's uniquely vulnerable position within the Mongol Khanate system, as a kind of central spoke of the wheel, it was both surrounded on all sides and had little in the way of natural defenses against hostile incursion. It therefore behooved Essenbucha and his successors to find a way to influence someone, I mean anyone, east, north, or west. Khosala's exile would prove to be their last card in attempting to influence Yuan politics, however, before at last giving up forever and turning westward toward the Ilkhanate of Persia. In any event, the exiled prince was given comfortable summer and winter grounds, as well as space for planting his crops, and otherwise treated as an honored guest for what would be the following 12 years. That brings us to our second son of Haishan, Khosila's younger half-brother by four years, Tokhtemur. Though apparently deemed insufficiently threatening to warrant quite the level of exile by Arabarwada in 1316, upon that emperor's death in 1320, his successor, Shidabala Khan, reversed the order and booted the 16- or 17-year-old Tolktemer to the other edge of the known universe, that place where courtly careers had been long sent off to die, forgotten and alone, Hainan Island. That order would be re-reversed three years later, after the coup at Nanpo saw Shidabala's untimely murder, and his replacement, Yesen Temer, semi-recalled him from political and social oblivion, deciding that Nanjing would be a bit more comfortable for the Mongol prince than sticky, humid, tropical Hainan, and yet still safely removed enough from the capital itself, 
He was also finally given a princely title, the Prince of Huai. There he would remain until the turning wheels of fate brought him back to the capital and the center of imperial power politics as of 1328. Finally, that brings us to the real mover and shaker of the events to come today, General El Temur. And yeah, remember that time back in episode 187 when I introduced Temur Khan and said that he was just going to be the first of, like, so many Temurs? All with just little different affectations thrown onto their names in order to just differentiate them at all? I mean, yes, this is what I was talking about right here and now. A lot of Temurs. So anyway, General El Temur, notably of the Kipchak Turks of Semurun officials of the UN, had earned his fame in battle and command of the Great Steppe Rebellion suppression campaigns against Kaidu, Nayan, and Dua Khans right at the tail end of Kublai's reign and even well into Temur Khan's reign. He and his equally bemetalled father had, as two of Kaishan's top field commanders, ridden his coattails back to the capital and into the imperial power politics at the top tiers of government, only to watch it all crumble away three years later with Kaishan's death and the accession of his very much not a military man, Ayar Barwada. He had retained something of a good posting, but had slid steadily out of the limelight over the subsequent two decades. Until, by 1328, he occupied the, quote, relatively modest but pivotal post of assistant manager of the Bureau of Military Affairs, end quote. This post would prove pivotal because it was right on the cusp of actual political importance. A mid-level position ensured that he wasn't quite important enough to be expected to accompany the Great Khan on his yearly trip up to Chengdu but he was still effectively high enough the ladder to put him in total command of the capital's Imperial Guard Corps when the higher-ups were away on vacation up north, such as, you know, the summer of 1328. And man oh man, was he just itching to find a way to get his favorite line of cons back on the throne, and of course himself, back into real power. It sure would be a shame if something were to happen up there in Shangdu, wouldn't it? So, to briefly sum up our main characters today, we've got Yasin Temur, the great Khan who's about to die up in Shangdu. We have General El Timur, formerly one of Kaishan's top lieutenants, who is currently the supreme commander over the main capital, Dadu's defenses, and Imperial Guard. And then we've got the two sons of Kaishan Khan, Big Brother Khosila, the Prince of Zhou, in exile, way out in the boondocks of the Chagatai Khanate, and little brother Tolk Temur, the Prince of Huai, who's close but not too close, cooling his jets in Nanjing a.k.a. as it's called at this point, Jian Kang. Yasin Temur had come to the throne in 1323 as a result of a seemingly unlikely first in Mongolian imperial history, an actual honest-to-God regicide. His predecessor, the bold, brash, hale, and hearty 21-year-old Shidabala Kayan, had been killed in such a brazen manner that not even the most sympathetic of chroniclers could chalk it up to, you know, like alcohol poisoning or the like. It remains at least somewhat uncertain of what role, if any, Yasun Temur himself played in the coup at Nanpo that ended Shidabala's life. Certainly, if we go by that old Roman detective's line of questioning, qui bono, Yasun Temur certainly stood to, and did, gain the most out of anyone involved in the death of the reigning Yuan emperor, and he knew it. He was the son and heir of Gamala, Crown Prince Junjin's eldest son, who had been a serious contender for the throne back in 1294. In 1304, upon Gamala's death, Yasun Temur had inherited the title of the Prince of Jin and the Guardian of Genghis Khan's Four Ordos, one of the most symbolically and militarily powerful positions in the entire empire. In the Kuril Tai of 1307, his claim to the Kayanate would have been just as strong as either Kaishan or Ayar Barwada, though his youth at the time, just 13 or 14, is likely what prevented him pressing it at the time. In the decade to follow, 
and especially once Ayabarwada had taken the throne and reinstituted a pro-Confucian, pro-Chinese set of politics, he had amassed unrivaled support amongst the princes of the steppe, who favored the old ways. So suffice it to say that he had a powerful means and potent motive, and Shidabala's transit from Shangdu south to Dadu seems to have provided a golden opportunity that was not to be missed. Though Yesun Temer attempted to present himself as having had no idea whatsoever of the plot around Shidabala Khan's life, there's ample evidence to the contrary. Xiao writes, quote, Without the tacit agreement, if not active encouragement, of Yesun Temer, Tegshi and the other conspirators probably would not have dared to commit regicide. It is known that Daula Shah, the administrator of Yesun Temer's princely establishment, had established close contact with the conspirators, and that the latter had informed Yesun Temer of the plot two days before the actual murder, proposing to elect him as a new Kayan should the planned assassination be successful. End quote. The History of Yuan writes that the prince desperately attempted to alert the great Khan of the impending danger, but alas, his warning arrived just a little too late. This, however, seems almost certainly to be a whitewashing of events by Yesen Temer's own partisans concocted well after the fact in an attempt to wash the blood from his hands in the eyes of history. In spite of his likely complicity in the plot that would enthrone him, once emperor, Yesen Temer wasted little time in turning against those who had carried it out. Those masterminds not of the imperial bloodline were swiftly put to death, while the five princes of the blood that had participated were banished into remote exile. It was, after all, only logical. How could a new king possibly trust known kingslayers, regardless of whether or not they'd done it on his behalf? Again from Xiao, quote, The purge of the conspirators was Yesen Temer's master stroke to boost his legitimacy. That is, he had to draw a strict line between himself and the act of regicide, which was inexcusable from the viewpoints of both Mongolian and Chinese political ethics, end quote. It sounds a little strange to say this, but of all the Mongol Kayans to rule over Great Yuan, Yesen Temer was probably one of, or maybe even the most, un-Chinese of the bunch. He was born in Mongolia, and lived there almost his entire life as a steppe nomad. He had no Chinese education to speak of, and brought with him his close cabal of Mongol and Semu advisors in lieu of the Chinese Confucian influences at the imperial court. Though himself a devout Buddhist, he also heavily favored Muslims in his court, to an extent unknown either before or after in the Yuan dynasty. In short, his reign was yet another hard pitch in the opposite direction from Shidabala and his father, Ayar Barwada, for the Yuan ship of state. As such, it's not surprising that as emperor, Yesen Temer took swift steps to court the Mongol princes over to his side, in order to further his claim to the true mantle of Great Khan. This is surely what inspired him to recall Tolk Temer from his exile at Hainan, along with another of Kaishan's sons who had been left in remote Shanxi. A hand of friendship was even extended to the most distant of Kaishan's sons, Khosila, still way off in the Chagatai Khanate. And Khosila responded positively, sending an envoy bearing tribute for the great Khan of the Mongols. For four years, he ruled in such a manner, upholding the rights and traditional privileges, and payouts, to his Mongol brethren, and either unmaking or simply ignoring any laws or reforms of his predecessors that had restricted such things, all, of course, at great cost to the Yuan state. His sickness had begun in early spring of 1328, and progressed with the seasons. By summer's approach, likely hoping that a change of climate would improve the weakened emperor's health, he and his retinue had set out for the summer capital. Yet there seems to have been little doubt in at least certain members of the imperial court that the 35-year-old emperor of China was unlikely to recover, 
and certain hmm, contingencies were quietly put into place. When death at last arrived for Yes and Hemmer on August 15th of that year, he must have at least gone to the grave comforted by the fact that he had a designated heir, the Crown Prince Aragibag, though only a boy of about eight, as well as a grand counselor who would ably serve as a regent until the boy was grown, the steadfast and loyal Daoula Shah. Aragibag would be duly enthroned at Shangdu that October as Emperor Tianshun. Yes and Temer's deathbed comfort, however, was illusory. The moment that word arrived at Dadu of the Emperor's passing, General El Temer launched his long-planned coup d'etat to restore the Kaishan line of Khans to the throne. His plan had actually involved staging a dual strike simultaneously at both capitals to cut off all loose ends at once, but 18 of his agents within Shangdu were discovered and executed before they could carry out their mission, thus leaving the boy king, Aragibag, and his inner circle still alive and ensconced in at least a seat of power. Nevertheless, El Temer, as commander of the capital guard while the royal court was away, was easily able to seize Dadu for himself. At dawn on September 8th, forces loyal to the general successfully stormed the imperial palace and rounded up all the key figures of the administration who hadn't made the trip north, and then installed a temporary government. He had missives to write to his allies and to his would-be Khan. Togtemer, by far the closer of the two potentials, received word at his villa in Nanjing of the coup and of the invitation to proceed to Dadu and take up the throne in the name of his father. A confederate of El Temer, and likewise former staff officer of Kaishan, named Bayan of the Merkid, was able to use his position as the manager of the branch secretariat of Hanan province to seize control of the province and create a safe path for Tolk Temer to ride, as well as raise considerable armies and funds from the populace in order to protect him. And then he personally escorted the prince all the way to the capital. Once there in Dadu, Tolktemer was formally enthroned on October 16th as Jaya Atu Khan, though it would prove to be only provisionally. Though Tolktemer had been El Temer's first choice as Khan, when word got out that his elder brother had been passed up, there was widespread public dissatisfaction that such a filially impious thing had been done. As such, finally bowing to widespread public pressure, Tolktemer swore that when his elder brother, Kosila, arrived from the far west, he would cede the throne to him in proper filial fashion. And so, the war of the two capitals was on. If moral righteousness and legal correctness won wars, then certainly the court of Aragibag at Shangdu held the upper hand, for they were supporting the designated heir of the late Kayan. Unfortunately for them, bows don't fire morality, and scabbers don't sheathe legality. And when it came to force of arms, as well as the realpolitik considerations of the day, Shangdu was heavily outgunned by the forces loyal to Dadu. Not only did the Kaishan Restorationists command the primary capital, but they were also able to count on material and financial support from some of the wealthiest regions of the empire. Dongshu, Henan, Jiangzhi, Jiangxi, and Huguang all pledged support to the sons of Kaishan. In contrast, the loyalists of Shangdu were only able to attract support from the more outlying, peripheral, and destitute provinces, places like Lingbei, Liaoyang, Shanxi, Sichuan, and Yunnan. In short, Jaya Atu Khan held the core and heart of Yuan China, while Aragebag could only count on its dregs. This was compounded, both materially and morally, by the fact that, in order to even try to retake the throne and overthrow the usurper cause, the loyalists at Shangdu, itself on China's northern periphery, were forced to play the part of the conquering invader and thus, quote, 
forfeit popular sympathy and supply themselves by looting Chinese villages, end quote. Altummer capitalized on this bad look by playing the good guy defender of China and providing quick relief to the regions that the Shangdu armies disrupted. Again from Xiao, quote, Though an insurrectionist, he made his own side appear to be the true defender of security and order, end quote. Truly, this was one of the great political judo maneuvers in history. At least initially, however, things seemed to be promising for the Loyalist forces. They were able to break through several defensive points along the Great Wall, and then made it as far as the outskirts of Dadu itself. But General El Temer had prepared for this contingency, and personally rode out against the attackers, quickly turning the tide and forcing them into retreat. Quote, What proved fatal to the Loyalists was a surprise attack launched by the Restorationists from Manchuria and Eastern Mongolia. Many of the Eastern Mongolian princes supported the Restorationist cause. End quote. Commanded by El Temer's uncle, Bukha Temer, with lightning speed, they rode out from eastern Mongolia. By mid-November, they had cut off and completely surrounded Shangdu and the imperial court within. The writing was on the wall. The war was over, and the loyalists had lost. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. By November 15th, Shangdu had capitulated, and the victorious armies marched inside. Most of the leading loyalists were arrested and ultimately executed for their supposed treachery, but not listed among them is the young emperor, Aragibag, who might have somehow been quietly spirited away, or, more likely, just murdered without a fuss. Elsewhere, some loyalist pockets would hold out until as late as the following May before laying down their arms. And in a singularly notable instance, loyalist pockets in distant Yunnan, supported by the indigenous Nanhan peoples of the region, would doggedly fight on for another four years. But in all cases, it would prove a lost cause. The path to the throne for the Kaishan Restorationists had already been made clear. When word reached Koshila from Datdu at his encampment at Tarbagatai of this successful coup, and of his pro forma invitation to take up the throne, since of course he was the big brother, and of course Togtemer would be just happy to step down for you who did literally none of the work, he set out at once eastward, accompanied by no less than the Chagatai Khan and some 1900 of his royal guardsmen. Xiao writes, quote, Mistaking Togtemer's and Eltemer's polite gesture as a sincere offer, Kozila had proceeded to appoint his own loyal followers to important posts, thus threatening to undermine the political machinery so painstakingly created by Togtemer and Eltemer in China. End quote. It was, however, an exceedingly long journey. On February 27th, Kosila chose the ancient Mongol capital of Karakorum to be where he would officially assume the twin mantles of Emperor of Yuan and Great Khan of the Mongols. There he remained for the next two months. In April, he sent a missive ahead to Dadu, 
informing them of his self-coronation and commanding that an ancient tradition be upheld once again. He wrote, quote, When I arrive in Shangdu, the princes of the various khanates will definitely all come to gather together. This is not to be compared to an ordinary court assembly. The Chagatai Khan, for one, has followed me for a long distance. The authorities must make all preparations to receive him. You and your colleagues in the Central Chancellery will discuss the matter. End quote. That's right. Kosello wanted a curl tie. The next month saw the arrival of the conquering general, El Temer, who had made the journey in order to deliver the Jade Imperial Seal to Kosila, and definitely not at all through a forced smile or gritted teeth or anything like that. This would officially mark the end of Tog Temer's provisional rule and his new status as the heir apparent, which again, he was just thrilled about. Arrangements were then made that Kosila Khan would leave Karakorum and continue eastward, while his brother and heir would depart Dadu and head north. The two would therefore meet in a joyous reunion at a place roughly equidistant between Shangdu and Dadu. The brothers would indeed reunite at that place, although it would prove to be very brief and very far from joyous. It occurred at a site known as Ongachatu, where the prince's father, Kaishan, had once laid the foundations for what would have been the third Yuan capital, Dongdu, before he died and the city was then scrapped by his successor. The brothers met there on August 26th, and though it was all smiles to each other's faces, it's pretty clear that neither side very well trusted the other. Koshila, for one, ordered an increase to his night guards. And as for Tolktemer and Eltemer? Well, it turned out that the extra night watchmen weren't quite near enough. For just four days later, at the age of 29, Koshila, wouldn't you know it, was stone dead. The history of Yuan explicitly states that it was a death by violence and several other subsequent historians have pointed to poison as a likely weapon, which is a very traditional Mongol choice, it should be noted. And like, obviously it was Togtemer and Eltemer who planned it and carried it out. Nevertheless, <laughs> whoopsie-daisy, I guess Togtemer will have to become emperor again. Ah, gee shucks, if he must. And so he was to be re-enthroned for the second time in as many years, this time in Shangdu, for good measure. To Dardis, the outcome at Ongochatu displayed a final and irrevocable step of the Kublaid monarchs of Yuan, from being great Khans of the Mongols to being full-on Confucian Chinese emperors. He writes of the difference between Kaishan's own accession as the step candidate a generation earlier, quote, To a very great degree, Kaishan's accession was the product of an unstabilized frontier, but Kaishan himself created the conditions that would make it impossible for his eldest son to follow in his footsteps. By 1328, Mongolia was integrated into an imperial system whose controlling levers lay in China and not in Mongolia. Unless Kosila had somehow been willing to demolish this structure, his step candidacy lacked all substance. End quote. It seems like Kosila might have thought pretty hard about just such a strategy, as shown by his self coronation at the old Mongol seat of Karakorum rather than at Shangdu or Dadu. But then he decided against it as just kind of a bridge too far for the Yuan as it was in 1329. Dardis goes on, therefore, quote, Since he did not attempt to demolish it, and thus reduce the steppe zone to anarchy once again, his idea of reaffirming the unity of the Mongol Empire was completely unreal. His assassination proved that the Yuan dynasty had triumphed over the Mongol Empire. It was finally determined that the Mongol ruler in China was Yuan Emperor first and foremost, and Great Kayan only in name. End quote. Yet Xiao points out other factors that certainly played likewise pivotal roles in the outcome at Ongachatu. Kaishan, for all of his step-riderishness, 
was tuned directly into the Yuan government establishment and the way it operated and functioned, and always had been his whole life. He had widespread support within the imperial court itself, in spite of his image as an outsider. His son, Koshila, on the other hand, was a complete alien to that same system, and had no support to the point of barely disguised hostility within the court. Everyone had been A-OK with Togtemer in charge, and they'd only offered out of politeness the throne to Koshila. And everyone knows that you're supposed to refuse that kind of an offer at least three times. I mean, come on, that's just tradition. You're not supposed to accept it right off the bat. Moreover, when Kaishan had taken over from his younger brother, Ayar Barwada, the latter had been merely an acting regent and hadn't officially taken up imperial titles. Koshila, on the other hand, had fully expected Togtemer to hand over total and formal imperial authority, which just ceremonially was just the thing you didn't do. And so, when Koshila barged into China like, well, a bull in a china shop, upending tables and traditions alike, people noticed that the bull was breaking all their nice pottery and lovingly crafted political machinery that they'd spent years building and months fighting for, and so they decided to make beef stew. It certainly didn't help Khoshila's case that he'd come in with a measly 1,900 soldiers that he'd, oh yeah, borrowed from the Chagatai Khan. Not at all like his father, who'd rolled in with 30,000 of his own guys who also just so happened to be the biggest, baddest soldiers in the empire. Now that says, look at me, I'm the Kayan now. A single small brigade of less than 2,000? I mean, that's one-star general level at best, friend, not great Kayan territory. He'd spent the prior 12 years as an exile in Central Asia, living off the largesse of the Chagatai Khan, and then just comes in rolling into Yuan China to make himself out to be the conqueror and dragon reborn. But in truth, he was only a beggar king. To Xiao, therefore, quote, Koshila's favor to capture the throne should be attributed to his personal status as a political refugee and his lack of political and military support, rather than to the declining importance of the steppe region and Yuan imperial politics, end quote. Togtemer thus resumed the throne as Jaya Atu Khan, but though he reigned, he cannot be said to have ruled in truth. Dardis writes that, quote, no previous emperor of the Yuan dynasty was ever so circumscribed in his powers as Togtemer, end quote. He served in his four short years on the Yuan throne as little more than a figurehead, a nominal emperor, symbol of legitimacy, and dispenser of titles and honors. Most of those titles and honors, not coincidentally, were quickly handed out to the two men who would rule the realm in truth, the kingmakers, Eltemer and Bayan of the Merkid. Eltemer, already not only multiple times war hero and grand counselor of the right, now had yet more titles heaped upon him. The Prince of Taiping, Darkhan of Mongolia, Grand Preceptor of China, Manager of the Bureau of Military Affairs, Censor-in-Chief, Chief Administrator to the Heir Apparent, Grand Academician of the Pavilion of the Star of Literature, he was also allowed to establish the Capital Military Commission, which enabled him to directly command and oversee six of the Imperial Guard Corps, including three of which that were composed primarily of his fellow ethnic Kipchaks. He was also allowed to marry into the Imperial family itself, taking one of the late Yesen Temer Khan's consorts as one of his wives, along with 40 other women of the Imperial clan. Likewise, three of his sisters were married into the Imperial house in turn. Bayan's honors and titles were second only to Eltemer's. The Merkid was given such titles as Defender-in-Chief of the Realm, Grand Guardian, and Grand Mentor, as well as likewise serving as Censor-in-Chief, Grand Counselor of the Left 
for a time at least, until he retired and let Altemer be the only Grand Counselor, and many other concurrent assignments. He was likewise given military command of two elite guard corps and invested as the Prince of Zhongning, rendering him eligible to take one of the great-granddaughters of Kublai as his consort. Throughout Togtemer's nominal reign, these two would work remarkably well together as the true power behind the throne, rendering them, quote, not only kingmakers in the true sense of the word, but also builders of their own power bases in the bureaucracy and military, end quote. Keenly aware of their and their Khan's illegitimacy in returning to the throne, the trio of rulers were swift to ensure that a bloody purge was carried out against any who might stand against them in life, while simultaneously conducting a widespread damnatio memoriae for those foes who might have already died. Quote, The purge against Yesun Tamar's heir was carried out thoroughly and mercilessly after the surrender of Shangdu in November of 1328. Not only were the leading loyalists killed or exiled, but their properties were confiscated. This vengeful spirit was so pervasive in the court that there was even a suggestion to kill all of the officials who had followed Yesun Temer on his annual trip to Shangdu. In addition, to make Yesun Temer's line illegitimate, not only was the Kayan denied a posthumous temple name, but the chamber in the imperial shrine where the tablet of Gamala, Yesun Temer's father, had been placed was also destroyed. Furthermore, the purge extended to Kosila's followers. Kosila's three senior supporters who had survived their lord's murder were either executed or dismissed from office in 1330 on one ground or another. End quote. Muslims, so prominent under Yesun Temer, were blanket denied positions with Tog Temer's central government. Confucians and even Semu officials likewise found themselves boxed out of virtually any position or decision. Instead, the triumvirate, knowing full well that they had no legal standing to back up their khanship, instead relied more or less on naked bribery of the Mongol princes in order to make them remain loyal. In his four years, Togtemer would enfief 24 Mongols as imperial princes, nine of which were of the first rank, and seven of those weren't even descendants of Kublai, which was prescribed. Concerted attempts were also engaged to mend bridges between Yuan and the other Khanates of Asia. The Takatai Khan, El Zigidei was understandably rather miffed that Togtemer had killed his ward and favored candidate, Kosala. Shortly after his second coronation, therefore, Togtemer sent the Chagatai Khan a precious gift by way of apology, an ancient Mongolian seal originally given by the great Khan, Ogede, to his brother Chagatai more than a century prior. Such a priceless gift did much to mollify the Khan's anger toward the new emperor of Yuan. The following year, a more general diplomatic offensive was engaged with not only the Chagatai Khanate, but the Golden Horde and Ilkhanate as well. These were one and all well received, and in what would prove to be the remaining three years of Togtemer's reign, he would receive two tribute missions from Ozbeg Khan of the Golden Horde, four from El Jigade Khan of the Chagatai, and as many as eight from Abu Sayyid Bahadur Khan of the Ilkhanate. As such, Togtemer could claim to have re-established, however nominally, suzerainty over the entire Mongol world as its true great Khan. In spite of this ostensible feather in his cap, though, Togtemer faced no shortage of discontent and even acts of outright sedition and rebellion against his rule. At least eight plots against the imperial court were either planned or enacted during his four years on the throne, involving several imperial princes and high-ranking officials in government. The fourth decade of the 14th century would likewise see a major uptick in natural disasters, and with them, peasant and ethnic minority uprisings. The provinces of Shanxi, Zhongshu, Henan, Huguang, and Jiangzhe were all hit seriously and frequently by either droughts or floods, and millions of people lost their homes. 
In the 28 years that had passed since the enthronement of Temur Khan in 1295 and the enthronement of Yesun Temur in 1323, there had been 69 recorded instances of popular uprisings against Yan rule, and mostly those had been small and local in nature. In the nine years between the start of Yesun Temur's reign and the death of Tolg Temur in 1332, on the other hand, there were 86 outbreaks of rebellion, 50 of which were centered in Huguang, and another 28 in Yunnan alone, both of which were regions heavily populated by ethnic minorities, and some of which were quite large and required enormous governmental expenditure to contain and suppress, and exactly at the time where the Yuan treasury could scarce afford such costs. From Xiao, quote, the revolt of so many indigenous groups was not due simply to the misgovernment of the two regions, but also to the cumulative grievances of those groups against the Yuan government's exploitation and harsh control of them, and also reflected the progressive weakening of the Yuan's local control over those border regions. Togtemer was only 24 when he first took, and then retook, the throne in 1328-29. It's curious, then, that he seems to have spent much of his mental energy in the subsequent four years on the throne, obsessing over his own ultimate legacy, and particularly the question of his own successor. It seems likely that, given the illegitimate and illegal nature of his own seizure of power, and fratricide besides, his actions may have haunted him, along with the idea that the same grisly end might eventually be meted out upon him or his descendants. He, and his principal wife, Empress Budashiri, intended that their eldest son, Prince Aradnadara, to succeed his father in the classically Chinese style. In 1330, the boy, who is of uncertain age, but likely not more than 10 or 11, or potentially younger, was named the Prince of Yan, a title held before only by his great-great-grandfather, Prince Zhenjin. Then, in order to make sure that there would be no question about the succession, that May, Kosila's principal wife, and briefly empress, Babusha, was murdered, and their eldest son, the ten-year-old Togon Temur, sent into exile, first in Korea, and subsequently to Guangxi in the far south. In January of 1331, Prince Arad Narada was formally designated as the heir to the empire. And then, about one month after that, he suddenly died. Whoops. This not only completely upended Tog Temur's successional apple cart, but also seems to have increased his existential dread at some kind of karmic comeuppance to what he'd just done to his brother, Kosala. The emperor entrusted the care of his second son, who he had just renamed El Tegus, meaning perfect harmony, apparently in an attempt to appease what might have been understood as the universe being out of balance due to his actions, to his trusted grand counselor, El Temur. Tog Temur did not, however, formally designate the now two or three-year-old boy as the official heir. And in fact, it would turn out he never had time. By the summer of 1332, Tog at 28 years old, took ill with an unspecified ailment and retired to what would wind up being his deathbed. At some point, apparently realizing as much, Tog expressed remorse for his actions against his brother, and in contrition, declared his intention that the throne should pass not to his own toddler son, El Tegus, but instead to his nephew, Koshila's eldest son, Togon who at now age 12, was still in exile in Guangxi. To this, Grand Counselor El Temur urged the dying Khan to reconsider. Quote, Fully aware of his own role in Koshila's death, El Temur was quick to realize the harm that the enthronement of any of Koshila's son could do to himself. End quote. He therefore urged the great Khan to rethink this decision and declare his own son as heir. I mean, it's the obvious choice, your majesty. 
To this, however, Empress Budashiri stepped in, and apparently also fearful of the karmic consequences of her husband's fratricide, should he not correct the imbalance, rejected the idea as well. Instead, a compromise candidate was worked out, not Togon Temur, but instead his little brother, the six-year-old Rinjinbal. It seems likely that he was chosen since it was more likely that a boy of his youth could be more easily made to forget the harm meted out upon his family by his predecessors. And so, with that finally settled, Emperor Togtemer died on September 2nd, 1332, after just four years on the throne, at the age of 28. The boy, Rinsinbal, was formally enthroned the following month, on October 13th, in the Imperial Palace at Datu. And perhaps here, Eltemer breathed a sigh of relief. He would, after all, be Grand Counselor and Supreme Regent over this pliable youth for at least the next decade and a half before the boy would be old enough to take power in his own right. And in that time, Eltemer could surely... Oh, wait, the kid just died. After a measly 53 days on the throne, Rinjinbal Khan died on December 14th, 1332, at the age of six. Whoops. Once more, El Timur asked the now Empress Dowager Budasiri to consent in having her and Togtemur's baby, El Tegus, enthroned. But she once again declined. As such, with no other viable option, Grand Counselor El Timur had no choice but to begrudgingly recall Koshila's eldest son, Togon Timur, from the far south in Guangxi, back to Dadu, to claim his birthright. And that's where we're going to end off today. Because next time, on July 19th, 1333, the height of summer in the Imperial Palace, that 13-year-old boy would be formally enthroned as the 15th Great Khan of the Mongols and the 11th Emperor of Great Yuan. And as it would turn out, he'll wind up being the last of both. Thanks for listening. Have you ever gazed in wonder at the Great Pyramid? Have you marvelled at the golden face of Tutankhamun, or admired the delicate features of Queen Nefertiti? If you have, you'll probably like the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore tales of this ancient culture. The History of Egypt is available wherever you get your podcasting fix. Come, let me introduce you to the world of ancient Egypt. Thank you.